Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can follow us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hey, Kim, how are you today? Hey, Mark, how's it going? Good. Let's talk some wine. We're always exploring current trends or topics in the wine world. Our first topic is from 750.com. Frequent questions about wine or misconceptions about wine. Can we get this all the time when we run events? What in this article was one that stood out the most to you that is most misunderstood maybe about wine? I think the comments about misconceptions about different grape varieties and what the style are is something that I've heard commonly from people. They might describe a certain style of wine that they like, but then go off to name wines that they think they like or grapes that they think they like, and the two don't necessarily match up. Like they might say, oh, you know, I really like a a heavier white, and then they'll say, like a Pinot Grigio. And I'll be like, hmm, not so much. Or same thing along the lines of something sweeter, where they might be like, yeah, I like a sweet wine, like a sweet Pinot Grigio. And there aren't that many on the market. So things like that, down to different grape varieties and different styles. What about you? You'll, well, on that subject, you'll hear quite frequently what they call varietal character. So each grape typically has a certain character it should have. So unfortunately, in the wine market now, on a label, if it says Cabernet or Pinot Grigio, it only has to be 75% of that grape in the United States. So you might like a wine that's on the low end at 75%, and then you try one that's 100% of the varietal, and it's totally different. Mm-hmm. So I can see where people would be confused with us. say, well, I like... You know, I think the big one, you may may not agree, but the big one today is Pinot Noir. Traditional Pinot Noir is very light at 100% Pinot Noir grape, and people are putting only 75%, so it's very heavy, very dark. So it's, there's a misconception that's what it's supposed to be. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think on the Pinot Noir topic, that's very interesting when you know what Pinot Noirs aren't 100% and what maybe have 20, 25% of something heavier in there, and people love them, and they get used to the fact that that this is what a Pinot Noir is all about. And then you give them something that is 100% and then they're a little confused and then they are expecting that all those other Pinot Noirs are going to be those heavier styles. And then they just think that, oh, I just like, I like Pinot, maybe I don't like Pinot Noir. You know, it, it's a little, it is a little confusing for the consumer, I think. Well, I think it, in a good way, it's, we can find out if you ask someone, do you like Pinot Noir? And then they tell you a brand and we know that it's right. only 75%, then you know, okay, I know your style. So mm-hmm. you're, you're a heavy Pinot Noir fan. Or- and I think that comes down, like red blends are similar. Like if people say, oh, I like a red blend, and then they can mention a few specific brands that they like, then knowing what those wines are all about, we can kind of figure out the next thing that they might like too. Here's another topic we always uh, get involved with is the organic confusion. And there's probably not an event we don't do or a class where someone's asking about organics. Right. So to me, someone will say they're drinking or they're eating organic food or they're looking at label contents. But on wine, if it just says anything organic, organically grown, organic grapes, they're jumping all over it, not knowing the true organics of it. Right. The American organic label when it comes to wine is a little bit confusing for people because say you go into the grocery store and you see a bag of carrots that says organic carrots. You're you're getting organic carrots grown in an organic method of production. But wine is more confusing because there are two different categories of quote unquote organic for wine. You can have wine that's made 
made with organically grown grapes and that is their own thing or you can have organic wine which is really a totally different creature and there are far fewer of those on the market and way more that are grown under just the grapes themselves are produced organically and that's just for wines that are made in the U.S. Then when you look at wines that are produced in other countries it adds a whole different level of complexity to it. Yes so organically grown compared to organically certified big big difference. Big difference. Big difference in sulfite use the growing of the grapes the treatment of the grapes. Even the yeasts that can be used. And the other thing that always I, I get surprised looks at when we teach it is it can say organically grown or organically farmed organic grapes it doesn't mean when it's processed it's still organic. Right it's the that organic certification sort of ends at the door of the winery so it's only what was happening in the vineyard if it says it was grown with organically made with organically grown grapes. Have you been exploring anything with organics lately Kim? Not really just sort of trying to follow the changes in European labels because there are quite a few more I find wines that have the organic certification of their own country that are a little bit easier for us to find here than American produced ones. So my understanding, you pick up, and I get this quite frequently, someone will come in selling a wine and say, well, it's it's organic certified by such and such in the in the EU. Mm-hmm. It, my understanding is the American TTB does not look at that. No, they don't. It doesn't. Just because it has a certified organic label from either one of the EU countries or overhead of EU doesn't mean that it has to be recognized by the U.S. government. So you have to do some research on your own. If it, if it mentions an organization that's certifying it, you should research that organization, make sure it's a true thing, because not being governed, they could put anything they want on that label to say it's certified. And quite frequently, people say to me, you know, try this wine. It's it's organic grapes. They're, they're, they're organic, but they don't go for certification. Right. I feel like we hear that more often. And I don't know if that is really true. And that is that just being used as a selling a selling gimmick, you know, a marketing gimmick where they can say, oh, yeah, you know, wink, wink, we use organic practices. I mean, there's nothing proving that they do. There's nothing saying that they don't. But I think you kind of have to take that with a little bit more of a grain of salt. And again, do your own research. But I mean, they can they can say that they try to use whatever organic practices. But if it doesn't say that the grapes are grown organically, then you really can't really trust that, I think. Yeah, it's really tricky. You, you just have to be aware of the differences and how they'll trick you on a label saying, using the word organic. It doesn't, we, doesn't yeah. mean it's certified organic or, or they're using less chemicals or anything like that. So, or using the word natural or all those tricky words that can be on a label. Yeah, be careful with that. And the next thing they talked about was supply and demand in the, in the wine world. And you talked about this quite often, Kim. With the internet nowadays, there might be some rare wine that's out there and you'll search it on Google and it pops up and you're like, wow, I should be able to find this down the street. And it's not that easy. It's it's easy to put anything on the internet. It doesn't mean you'll easily find that product. Yeah, I thought this was a very interesting one to put in here that we need to, when you think about wine and you think about the fact that it's an agricultural product, that there's a, a finite amount of it produced in a specific vintage. So meaning that the grapes were all harvested in one year. But once that's gone, that's gone. Sometimes there are bottles, of course, that are held back because somebody is aging them or someone is hoping that they will be some sort of investment. You don't see that as often. And I don't think that the general consumer really pays much attention to that. But you know, you really do need to think of it as, as a finite resource. And then once that particular vintage is gone, you move on to the next one. And for so many wines, this isn't an issue because there's much more consistency from vintage 
vintage to vintage that, okay, you just roll into next year's vintage of Sauvignon Blanc and, you know, maybe it's a little bit fresher and hey, here we go. But then there are some other ones that do have more individual characteristics from one year to another and you might really, really like that vintage and you might search all over the place for it. But really at the end of the day, it, once it's gone, chances are it's probably gone. You mentioned production. As as a consumer, Kim, do you research or look at when you're when you're drinking wine, say, oh, I like this wine. Do you look at the production of it? Like how much it's how much is produced? Yeah. Not all that often. If I see it and then uh, then I can get a little bit of information maybe about the quality of the wine, given how much is produced. So say I found a wine that's reasonably priced and tastes really good and there's only, say, 8,000 cases of that produced. That's pretty darn small production. So I might be a little bit more wary of saying, oh, I'll just come back in a couple months and get another bottle of this because I know that that production is on the smaller side. So I might want to lay in a little bit more of it. But yeah, not necessarily. I mean, there's there's a big difference between a wine that maybe is only a few few hundred cases or a few thousand cases and, and a million cases. But I don't think that that is something that generally people are looking at See, unless we tell them to look at yeah, it. So for me, I always put that in my notes. What's the production? Because if I'm tasting a wine, I'll say, well, how much are they making? Because if I'm finding something that's say under $20 and they're making less than 10,000 cases, say to me, that adds so much more value to the wine, small production at a, at a low cost. So you're looking at that as a as an indicator of quality and not as, or, or do you, are you also looking at that as, oh, I really like this wine. I need to make sure that I buy enough of it because there might not be a whole lot left the next time I go to reorder. Yeah, because to me, it's something you're not seeing everywhere and to be tasting good at that mm-hmm. price point, I think is very hard to find nowadays. So I will write that on my notes and say only 6,000 cases made. But it, sometimes it can be tricky because they might have wine in barrel, same vintage, and they'll bottle it and say, we've only bottled 2,000 cases. The next thing you know, there's another 2,000 cases because they oh, bottle another barrel. So you got to be careful how that is. You, sometimes you, you you might question it. You might It's not deceiving shelf talking material. It's the true wine world. They might have more in reserve. They see how it goes. They put out another 2,000. So their total could triple. Hmm. So you have to be careful. But it's interesting how you look at it being in the wine business and how I look at it yeah. is for production. So we're always different on things that way. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find my website at vinitaswineworks.com and you can find out more information about Mark at franklinliquors.com. We found a very handy guide on Bon Appetit's website about being able to identify certain faults and flaws in wine. So things that you might smell or taste in a glass of wine that really aren't meant to be there. And we thought that this was a really nice introduction to some of these things to the casual wine drinker who might not necessarily know the language to put with these things. So Mark, uh, do you often get returned bottles to the store because there are there's something wrong with the bottle? Do no. people ne- necessarily know that they've got a bad wine? No, it's very low. They say it could be one to 5% that's bad that people should return. Restaurant, I think restaurants probably have a better or higher return rate than retail. Mm-hmm. The, the interesting thing on this article is how they explained a flaw as something that's just a minor problem with the wine versus a fault, which is something something major wrong with the wine. So 
many times I feel people may get a, a wine that is bad somehow and they just think the wine is bad. It's not a, um, what would you say, an issue with the wine. Can right. So, yeah. So we're not talking here about crummy wine, you know, a wine that is just poorly made or uses low quality grapes, doesn't have any complexity to it. Just, you know, what you'd call cheap wine, crummy wine. Not, But I'm not even talking about yeah, price here. Yeah, price just like, low. you know, not good quality wine as opposed to what we're talking about, which is that there is some sort of chemical or biological flaw in the wine itself. So like another bottle of this wine might be perfectly fine, but this particular one, there might be something wrong with. And that was a big reason why a lot of the producers went to different closures to prevent that percentage of coming back. So if, if they were getting a corked bottle back, they could say, yeah, it is, it is faulty because of the cork, but with a screw cap, the chances of it being bad is very low. Right. So the, the corked wines we talk about often, and this is probably the most familiar of the faults, I, I would say. And it's it's caused by a particular compound called TCA, which uh, sort of attacks the wine and it strips it of its flavors and it doesn't have nice aromas anymore. And it just sort of smells like wet cardboard and moldy basements and sort of yucky smells and tastes like that. That is absolutely not a, a smell or a taste you should be finding in your bottle of wine. So if you ever were to open a bottle of wine and pour out a glass and take a sniff or take a sip and it has those moldy, wet, kind of yucky smells and tastes to it, feel free to stick the cork right back in the bottle and bring it back to where you purchased it because that is a technical fault with that bottle and it's, um, you, you really can you really can return it. Especially if you're drinking the same brand all the time and you open it, you know what that wine should be tasting like. If it's off in any way that you're, you're used to, definitely return it because it's faulty in some way. And, and we joke a lot with each other about we taste a lot of wines and I think as a taster, the more we taste, we, we can perceive faults or flaws a lot better than most wine drinkers. So many times it's just a very little thing that's off in the wine that we, we can be concerned about that others would probably not. And I think that's what, what is hard about this particular topic is because if it's just a little bit of a flaw in something and you're not as familiar with what that wine should taste like, you probably are going to think, oh, this is just what the wine tastes like. And maybe you don't like it. And it might not be that you don't like that wine or you don't like that style or you don't like that grape or you don't like that country, that there might just be a little something off. And there are any number, we've got about a half a dozen here, different things that could be wrong with that bottle. And sometimes if you don't have the experience with it, it is really hard to tell. So it's not necessarily an easy an easy thing to, to point your finger at and be like, oh, I know what's the something, definitely something wrong with this bottle. And it can be, I think, intimidating and a little embarrassing, especially if you're at like a restaurant and you order a bottle, you're taking a little bit of a chance and you're buying something that you might not be totally familiar with. And the wine steward or the waitress or the psalm pours you a glass and you smell it and just something doesn't seem right. Do you really feel confident enough to say, hey, I think there's something wrong with it? So that that definitely can, can I think, get in the way. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the, the restaurants because they have a whole procedure. They're, they're bringing the wine to you. They're presenting it. And it's for you to say, yeah, this is okay. I accept it and I'll pay for it. I'm going to drink it with my meal. In a retail, you don't have that option. You're not popping it open and testing it before you leave the store. So in a restaurant, take advantage of really tasting it. If it if it's not matching what you bought or you think it's off, just tell them it's it's you thought it was a different style or whatever. They'll accept that. That's common courtesy in the restaurant business. So take advantage of that. One of the things I want to talk to you about, Kim, was a, a story I had where a winery came into me with a wine and the actual presenter from the winery gave me a bottle and I tasted it in front of him and it was it was totally bad, totally corked. Mm. And he tasted it and said, well, yeah, 
yeah, it's a little, it's a little off. So if you ever run into an issue where you just felt there was something wrong and no one else would really think it is. Yeah, I do this with cork bottles sometimes at, at wine tastings because I feel like I'm particularly sensitive to tasting corkiness in a bottle. And and I, I'm not really shy about bringing it up anymore. You know, I could be in a, a room full of other wine people and, and I don't mind raising my hand and saying, hey, I, I think this one might be a little bit cork. And there have been a couple instances where everybody else has shot me down and be like, no, this wine is fine. So I'm like, okay, if you if you think so. And so then I sort of second guess what I'm sensing and what I'm smelling and tasting. And I'm like, okay, so maybe this is supposed to be like this. I, d- I don't know. But then I have you know, a negative perception of that wine because for to me, it's not tasting and smelling the way that I feel like it's supposed to. So yeah, there I don't is know. a threshold that really lowers when you when you taste more. So you you obviously tasted more than probably everybody in the room. And, <laughs> I doubt and you that. Tasted something that was was different. Maybe you know? so. I, don't know. I mean, it's but in the industry, when you go to an, when there's other people in the industry tasting, you feel really nervous to say anything's wrong. But you have to go what you got and say like you did. I something's wrong. Here, right. right. And sometimes you'll be shot down, and sometimes people will be like, No, no, this bottle is fine. That's the way it's supposed to taste. And you kind of just got to shrug your shoulders and be like, All right. But that's finding its way into my tasting notes. And there have, there have been times where if other people have said, No, this is fine. This is you know, there's nothing wrong with it. I'll still write in my tasting notes corked and I won't I won't write a review of it because I don't necessarily think it's fair because I don't think it's a true representation of what that wine is all about. So. And on that point, how many times have we done tastings together and someone in the room was saying, oh, this is this is horrible. Something's wrong. And then we taste it. And sometimes <laughs> like, we agree. Sometimes like you agree and I don't. We're like, oh, this is it's nice. It's common. It's, everybody's palate is different. So right. everybody perceives things differently. And most of the time, I think it's just it might be a grape or a varietal that someone has never tried before from a region someone hasn't tried before and they think it's faulty and it's just that's the way the wine is from right. that region. And that's how this kind of gray area also comes into play, not just with these corked bottles that we're talking about, but with some other things like there's, what is Britannomyces? Is it a bacteria or is it a yeast? I, I guess say, it's a yeast. Well, I think most things are, are bacteria. Bacteria. <laughs> I don't remember if Brett is a yeast or if it is a bacteria, but there's this other microbial organism that can get into wine that also imparts its own unique flavors. And it gives aromas and flavors of sort of like leather and horsiness and sweat sometimes. So just kind of, you know, think of all those things in your mind. And and for some wines, this is a ubiquitous flavor. Like this is something that is always there. And now we're starting to determine whether, okay, is this just how this grape smells and tastes and is supposed to? Or is there something going on in the winery where there is almost to the level of, let's say, an infection of this um, microorganism that is imparting these flavors to the wine. And if it's been going on long enough, it just becomes the style of the wine. And there are varying, again, varying levels of it. So if there's just a tiny little bit, does it, is it a positive? And is there, if there's too much of it, does it turn into a negative? So there are a couple of these things where it's, it's like in small quantities, they add to the unique character of a wine, but in at higher levels, then they become a problem. Yeah, that's a good way to explain it because there are like that Brett issue with the, the horsiness you call it or yeah. the bond it's normal in certain regions but it can be overpowering if it if it takes control of the wine I guess right. or the fruit I'm trying to say if it loses the fruit and some people like more of it and some people like less of it I tend to like less of it but a tiny little bit isn't necessarily bad and then there's also sometimes too much acidity in a wine and 
not just too much acidity, but a particular type of acidity called volatile acidity, meaning that, you know, the wine isn't, it's not in balance. And it there's just, it's, it's almost going over the side into vinegar. And some people really like really high acid wine. So for them, this is a positive trait. But then for a lot of other people, it's not because it can make the wine sort of unstable and just not particularly taste good. So that's another one of those that, you know, in a little bit, very small quantity, it could work for certain wines, but then with too much, it just kind of knocks it over the edge. And it's like, oh no, this is definitely a problem with this. Yeah. There's so many faults. When we talk about flavor charts and taste profiles, there's also charts for faults. So if you detect something like you were saying, uh, oxidized or this horsiness or rotten eggs or something, you can Google that term or research that term. It'll tell you exactly what the fault is. We don't want to kind of get more in depth and gross people out and turn them off online. (laughs) But there are some things that are out there that do cause these issues. So if you want to get really geeky, you could could look it up. Uh, But we want to keep you loving wine like we do. So Kim, you hear the term, someone says to you, this wine is oxidized. Do you consider that a flaw, fault, or or what in the wine world? Uh, It kind of depends on the wine, which is my stock answer for most questions for people, unfortunately. Oxidation of a wine just means that there has been maybe too much oxygen exposure for the wine. So think of it as when you cut an apple and it starts to turn brown. That's oxidation. And the same thing happens with wine because at the end of the day, it's fermented fruit juice. Fermentation protects wine sometimes from oxygen, but you usually need a little bit of oxygen exposure in order for all the cogs to turn and do all the right things so that you actually get your nice wine at the end of the day. But too much oxygen can spoil a wine. It will turn it brown. It will make it smell a little stinky. It'll have, what's a good way to describe oxidized wine? Some sort of that uh, an apple has gone bad sort of a smell. I'm always searching for descriptive terms for wines that have oxidized. I think the best thing you said that I use all the time too is the fruit. You bite into an apple, it's white, and then the oxygen hits it and turns brown or banana. Those are the examples I always use to, I think people relate to that more. And especially, I mean, if you have an old bottle of white wine, so say a 10-year-old bottle of Pinot Grigio that you forgot on a shelf somewhere, if you pour a glass of that, it's going to be brown. Like it's going to look like that cut apple. So I think at that end of the spectrum, then yeah, that it's a fault, not for, not that the wine has done anything wrong, but that it's just too old. So I guess you could say that over aging or, or just a wine is past its prime is kind of a fault in and of itself. But you sometimes do get a younger wine that isn't supposed to be that way, that maybe it has been exposed to excessive heat, or maybe there was something wrong with the cork or the closure and too much air got in there and it turned brown. So yeah, especially if you have a young white wine and you pour it and it's, it's a brown color, then that's definitely a fault with that bottle. And then there's the, then there are some wines that take a little bit of that oxidation and it's not a fault and it's really not even a flaw. It's a part of their character of the wine. So there are sherries that are this way, this whole new movement with natural wines and orange wines. They are meant to be that way. So that's why I kind of said that it depends. It depends on the wine, but it's the opposite of another fault or flaw called reduction, which just means that there's too much sulfur in the wine. So when the wine was bottled at the winery, maybe there was a little too much sulfur dioxide added. And that luckily, if you open up a wine and kind of swirl it for a little while, will sort of blow off, but it'll have the smell of like rotten eggs or 
or a, a just struck match, like those kind of sulfury smells. You hear that a lot with, with the screw cap closure. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing they're doing in a very small airspace that's left in a screw cap is adding that sulfur. So you crack it open and right away you get hit with that blast of sulfur. So they're finding now, and this term's coming up a lot more with, with screw cap wines, they don't really age as well on the bottle with the screw cap. So you're hearing that quite often. And just to get back on your oxidized, as a shopper, if you look at most young white wines will come in a clear bottle. So when you're walking down an aisle, you can easily kind of detect if there's a faulty, a badly fault bottle in the batch because it'll it'll already probably turn brown compared to the others. Have yep. you ever noticed that, Kim? When- I have. And sometimes you notice the fill too. So sometimes if you are, say you're comparing three bottles of the exact same wine, if one's a little bit browner, it might have less wine in it too, saying that there has been a little bit of a leakage of some of the wine from, from the cork or from however it's capped. And so as the liquid has left the bottle, air has gotten in and that's what has spoiled the wine. Yeah, that's a good tip. You can you can look at the caps or, or the corks and see if it's the levels dropping or if they, like you said, if it's wet or it's showing any moisture on top, then you know something's going on. So pick the bottle next to it, not, not that one. <laughs> so I guess what we have to say is follow your nose. If something doesn't smell right or doesn't look right or doesn't taste right, talk to, talk to us, ask someone who you trust who either is a restaurant person or talking to somebody in a in a trusted wine store and just ask them say hey i had this experience with a bottle was this right or is this something that there was something wrong with the bottle and we're always here to help you You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. If you want more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you like more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. And if you like more information about our show, please go to Facebook on The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we want to talk about uh, alcohol levels being lowered or considered to be lowered in the United States. And this is a very serious uh, subject that cbs.com had uh, brought up. This could eliminate 10,000 alcohol-related deaths a year, Kim. So what is your overall impression on alcohol levels? I think people need, of course, to be careful when they are consuming an alcoholic beverage and then getting in a car and driving home or driving someplace else. I think it's very interesting that the research for this was exploring how lowering the, the threshold of what would get you arrested versus what wouldn't get you arrested, how that really does translate into fewer accidents. So it does seem to be that people are heeding new new restrictions and making sure that they don't get behind the wheel, which which is great. We, we saw so many changes in the early 80s with changes to consumption laws as far as people not really not getting behind the wheel as often when they've been drinking because there was such a push from MAD about having the government step in and making making new laws about what what was the maximum amount that people could be drinking and, and still be considered capable of driving a car. So there does seem to be some some real science behind this. And I think that's good. I think moderation is always to be encouraged and safety as well. A car can be a big, dangerous object. And we really, we consumers of alcoholic beverages really need to be um, responsible and aware. A lot of the data came from studying the state. So all states now, the threshold level is 0.08 blood alcohol level, but Utah is actually 0.05. So that is what they're kind of basing the study on. We should drop it to 0.05. So you now have to look at how much 
you can consume that will bring you to the lower level. So they had some interesting stats of, say, if a woman weighs 120 pounds, to be at 0.05 would be two drinks, compared to a man at 160 pounds would also be two drinks. So I thought it's interesting how they show the body weight and that consumption. But there's Mm -hmm. other factors. We always talk about food consumption and things like that. So food consumption, having enough water in your system, and just taking time. Two drinks over the course of an hour is going to affect your blood alcohol very differently than two drinks over the course of three hours. So taking all of those things into consideration and just making sure that you're being smart about it. I was surprised. I was thinking the EU that you, in Europe that level was higher, but it was actually, it's been 0.05 for a while, yeah. I guess. The French have actually always been very, very strict about their, their driving laws when it comes to your, your alcohol consumption, which, yeah, it does seem sort of counterintuitive. Got a country that is really known for its wine production, its wine consumption, its, its food traditions, and they're really serious about their drunk driving laws. So a hundred countries use the 0.05 threshold level. And in the EU, they've cut the drunk driving deaths in half at this threshold. So I think that data alone is is pretty interesting. They also said a few reasons why they feel it should be lowered. Kim, did you see about the size of glassware is expanding? So <laughs> Right. They're also saying that if, as glasses get bigger, people are going to consume more. And I know that there's been some research about this as far as how much food is on your plate, that if you have more food on your plate, you are more likely to consume more than if you have less, a smaller plate and smaller portions. And are you necessarily going to go back for seconds? But I thought that was very interesting with the size of of wine glasses, which has definitely grown over the last few decades. The serving size standard, you'd notice that if you go to one restaurant, you order a glass of wine, you go to another one, the volume difference is crazy. So you might say, well, I can drink a glass of wine, but it's two ounces at one place and it's six ounces at another place. Big difference in alcohol consumption. Yeah. And why? I mean, restaurants can can call four ounces a pour or they can call six ounces a pour. I don't think there are too many places where it's eight ounces as a pour, but it's very possible. The other reason they're saying we should lower the threshold is the drinks have become more affordable. And I guess an example of this is why they eliminated these happy hours in, in a lot of states because people are just going for an hour and consuming as much as they could at reduced prices. Mm-hmm. But overall, people are still having special drink prices that can cause you to consume a little bit more. And especially if you're drinking cocktails that might have three shots of liquor in them, that's a pretty hefty drink. And when we talk about drink size or alcohol quantity sizes, usually the standard size is an ounce of like an ounce of vodka or an ounce of tequila. You're not getting a margarita with just an ounce of tequila in it, I promise you. The last trend they talked about, which opened my eyes, and I see this a lot, is people that are mixing alcohol with either energy drinks or caffeine drinks. So now it's harder to figure out what you're consuming. So that to me kind of, you know, drew interest on the subject. Right. It's when there's that stimulant mixed in there with the alcohol. And what is that doing to not only your body, but your perceptions of things around you? And especially if you're trying to get behind the wheel of a car. I think in the industry, we're aware of it. It's a sad part of our industry, but we're aware of consumption. We always train on noticing things. Uh, Anything else you saw in this article, Kim, that you kind of want to touch base on us? No, just we we always like to encourage people to be moderate and, you know, know your limits. And I don't think that too many people are aware there of their own limits. Like how many drinks do I, can I drink in order to only be at 
0.08. So I'm hoping that one thing that would come out of studies like this, and if there are changes, especially in our own local, you know, local laws would be some clarifications of, okay, you might have previously been consuming this many drinks and still be okay to drive. Well, now you need to cut it back to this, and then you'll still be on the safe side. So I think just a little bit more education uh, on that end to have some, you know, real world useful knowledge for people so that they know that they are doing it safely. Do you have any thoughts on these gadgets that are now, I see more and more either an app or a calculator type thing. Just the other day I was watching Shark Tank and a gentleman had another like device you blow in to check your level at a reduced price. So do you find any value with that? I think the jury is still out as far as what, what breathalyzers can tell about, breathalyzers can tell about how you've, how much you've been drinking and how that is impacting you. So I know that there are, there are court cases that are trying to say that the results from them are invalid and shouldn't be used because scientifically they're very flawed. So I don't know. I think that there definitely needs to be more scientific research into ways of making sure that if people are over the limit, that that is being handled and that people who are under the limit aren't penalized by a faulty scientific device that is giving bad information. So as a as a consumer and as a wine educated, you agree with the threshold being lowered? If lowering the threshold does save lives and contributes to safer for roads, then yeah, I guess I would have to. I agree with that. It's one of those things where there's so much evidence out there and documentation that it, it helps. So I don't think it can hurt. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. To find more information about our show, please visit us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Cheers. Wine, wine, wine.